Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask, if you're a fan of the show, to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Michael Devitt, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the City University of New York Graduate Center, and he is here to talk to us about reference. Michael Devitt, welcome. Thank you. Very pleased to be here. The theory of reference is a very important branch of the philosophy of language, which studies what it is for a word to stand for something. So, for example, the name Matt Teichman stands for me, the person. You know, names of people and names of places are taken to be paradigmatic cases of words referring to things. But why would we need to have a whole theory about reference? I mean, why do philosophers write so many books about how it is that a word can come to stand for something? Isn't it just pretty simple? Yes, well... Unfortunately, it's not really simple, but it isn't all that easy, it seems to me, to motivate it properly. So I'd like to get into this by starting with a question. Reference is, quite obviously, a property of expressions in the language. Now, this should raise the question for you, what is a language? What makes it theoretically interesting? I think the only way to, un- to really answer your question about reference properly is to get some grip on those questions. So let's just think about this, and I'm going to start by talking about the animals. Lots of animals have languages, but the languages are mostly very boring because they're simply expressions of their own inner state. I'm hungry, I'm angry, I want a mate, and so on. But there are in um, the animal world quite a few languages, not as many as you might expect, which are not of that sort, and they're ones that the cognitive ethologists, the people who study animals, minds call referential languages. And these are languages which convey information about the environment from one organism to another organism. So I'd just like to say a word about them to help us with this reference question. And I'm going to deal with the bees. Carl von Frisch spent several decades of his life working on the bees, and he won a Nobel Prize for his discovery. Well, what did he discover? He observed the behavior of the bees, and he was struck by some very unusual features about this behavior, including the waggle dance. When bees come back to the hive after being out, uh, returning from foraging, they do a, a waggle dance on the side of the hive. He studied this very, very closely for a long time and came up with the view, extraordinary view and very controversial at the time, that what this waggle dance constitutes a language. What does that mean? Well, it constitutes a representational system. This representational system obviously plays an extremely important role in their lives, and the role it plays is it's a system which is used by the beast to express the content of some inner state. He figured out that these waggle dances, this language of the waggle dance, conveyed from the sender bee to the receiver bee information about the direction of 
a food source, the food source the sender B had just come from, and the distance of the food source. So that's quite a complicated and obviously very important message. And these receiver bees responded to this message in the appropriate way, which is going there to try and find food. Absolutely extraordinary phenomenon. So we got here some inner state of the bee, which represents the distance and direction of the food source. And the language is used to convey that information, that content, that message to another bee. Now we've actually got what the message is. Von Frisch discovered it. But what we then want to know is how to describe it. Well, one way to describe it is to say, well, it's a complex message that refers to, notice the use of the word refer, it refers to the distance of the source, the food source, and also the direction of the food source. And the message is some combination of those two bits of referential information. So there's an example of how we might use reference to try and explain what's going on. The question that should then occur to you, however, is in virtue of what does the dance convey these two referential facts? What makes it the case that it refers to a certain direction for the food source and refers to a certain distance for the food source? How does it do that? Von Frisch had an answer, and it's pretty amazing. What I want to do, though, before I give the answer is to see where we are here. First of all, we've got the language. It's serving a role, a very important role in the bee's life. And we've got to describe that role, first of all. And describing the role amounts to assigning a certain content or message or something to the dance. In assigning that message, we have to have recourse to terms like reference. And reference seems to be a very good term to use here. That's the first step. But now we've done that, we need to explain in virtue of what it has those properties. That's demanding a theory of reference. And von Frisch gave us the answer. Take just the direction of the food source. He discovered that if you consider the, the, the waggle dance that the bee does on returning from the food source, on the side of the hive, it's at a certain angle to an imaginary vertical line on the side of the hive. If you draw a line from the hive to the food source and from the hive to a spot underneath the sun, that angle is the same as the angle of the dance, the waggle dance to the vertical. So as it were, any bee that processes this properly, notices where the sun is, will actually know the direction of the food source. So that was the answer to the theory of reference so far as direction is concerned. And what we're doing with human languages, which I'll get to in a minute, is analogous to that. First of all, we've, we need to assign referential properties to bits of language in order to explain their role, and then we need to explain in virtue of what they have those properties, and we want to do something like what von Frisch did. Let me give another example. This is a scientist called Slobodchikov has studied the prairie dogs, and the prairie dogs, he discovered, have a language which warns about predators. Prairie dogs have quite a range of predators. They have eagles and hawks and things like that, coyotes, humans. Prairie dogs live in burrows, but they have guard dogs who watch out. And these guard dogs are the ones who give the warning signals, in a series of very shrill barks. And it was discovered that these convey information 
about the sort of predator. Is it a coyote? Is it an eagle? Is it a human? And also even the characteristics of this particular example of that thing. So is it the coyote who likes to rush in and grab any prairie dog who's been too slow to get into his burrow? Or is it the one who likes to creep in slowly, keeping an eye open and waiting and waiting until one dog runs a little too far from a burrow? Once again, you can see the language, this representational system that the prairie dog has is conveying very important information that the guard prairie dog has. It has a representation of the predator and it conveys this information to the others and this is enormously important to their survival. So let's now turn to humans. I want to tell pretty much the same story. It's rather harder to get a grip on this because we're so intimate with our own languages, but we should always try to think of them just as we think of the animal languages. So here we've got humans with languages, and the languages are often obviously playing an enormously important role in our lives. I said that with the prairie dogs and the bees, what happens in the languages, they communicate the content of an inner state. That's what the language does. Well, so do our languages. They communicate the content of our thoughts. There's a very familiar piece of folk wisdom. Language expresses thought. And it seems to me this piece of wisdom is really a piece of wisdom. So we've got thoughts and we express them in using language. Now, just as with the bees and the prairie dogs, we need to say, what are the properties that are thus conveyed? What are the properties of the thoughts that are thus conveyed? And we need to bring in some terminology in order to describe those properties. And once again, reference seems to be an extremely useful thing to talk about. So let's take a message. I heard someone, a conservative pundit on the television say, Ted Cruz is loathed in the Senate. Now, I heard this and I got some information from this. Now, what properties, the key issue here, as with the bees in the prairie, what properties did that utterance have from this pundit that enabled it to perform this very important role that our, our languages play in informing me about the world, conveying this message to me? A popular idea, not universal, but it seems to me the right idea and certainly very popular is that reference is a key notion in explaining the properties of utterances like that one, a key property in explaining how it can form, perform its role. We say, well, it was really vital to that noise that the pundit uttered. Ted Cruz is loathed in the Senate. It's vital in explaining its message to see that the name Ted Cruz, as you, Matt, evidenced in your initial remarks, names like that they refer to some object. The name Ted Cruz that occurred in the pundit's statement refers to the junior senator from Texas. That's an important part of understanding the content of this message, this referential relationship between the name Ted Cruz and a certain person. We're doing just the same sort of thing as we did with the bees and the prairie dogs. And just the same question now comes up. In virtue of what does Ted Cruz the name refer to the junior senator from Texas. It's just like, in virtue of what does the bees dance refer to the distance? In virtue of what does the prairie dog's bark refer to a coyote who likes to rush in and grab the first one he 
thing in effect. What makes it the case that these various symbols in these various languages have the property they have, which is so explanatory of their role? That's why you need a theory of reference. That's really interesting. So just to go back on some of what you said, so you, we started out by saying that animals have languages and they, they do different things with language. And one of the things that animals do is just to yelp in pain or whimper with hunger. I tread on my dog's tail, it yelps, it's an expression of pain in some sense. And you might think, if you weren't thinking about it very much, that that's all that animals do. But then it seems like some of these experiments, like the experiments with the bees, have shown, no, there's this other really interesting, strange thing that animals do. They don't just mm -hmm. yelp in pain. They use language to refer to the world. Mm. And as you said with the case of the bees, that was a very controversial claim initially. Mm. And, mm. and so it would be very natural to ask the question, what makes you think that these bees are referring to something right. in the world? What, what would make it the right. case that they're, right. they're referring to something in the world? So there's what's really nice about the animal example is the sense in which the idea of reference is a kind of strange idea and it looks like a real achievement to be able to refer to something. And so the point that you made that I love is that we're kind of used to the idea of human language referring to things, mm. but in some ways it's no less strange mm. that we succeed in mm. referring to things. And so that's, that's why we need a, a theory of reference mm. to explain how we do that. Mm. So that's why this is important. I mean, the next question, I guess, is what have philosophers said about this? So there's one theory that people have put forward that you've discussed, which is the descriptive theory of reference. So maybe you could say something about that. Right. L let me just take up, before I do, something you said which I think is important. You were drawing attention to how surprising the view about the bees is, and indeed how controversial it was, and it sure was controversial. It remained controversial for a long time, even after it got the Nobel Prize. And you raised the question, which you know, we should always be raising in philosophy, where whatever we're doing is, well, how do we know? I mean, all right, so von Frisch came up with this theory. What's the evidence for the theory? And um, this is really, really, it's very similar to a standard scientific situation. The evidence is very careful observation of the bee's behavior. He sees the waggle dancers, he sees which way the bees move, he notices, and of course this was painstaking and took years to, you know, he sees how the waggle dance varies. He sees how the, the receiver bees move and so on and so forth. And then he is seeking the best explanation. So it's just a standard case of the best explanation. He comes up with a view that the bees have a language. Of course, this is so, an insect, it seems so preposterous to people that people resisted it and they were wise to resist it. For one thing, apart from any other disturbing thing about this proposal, Von Frisch didn't have any idea how the bee, what's going on in the bee that enables it to do this. We still don't know, at least the last time I looked, we don't have the faintest idea how a mere insect can do this. So that's another reason for skepticism. So other hypotheses were put forward to try and explain just the same behavior. For example, there was the idea that the bee, when going to a food source, leaves a vapor trail of some sort, and that the receiver bees are not, contrary to what von Frisch says, responding to a, a language, a message, they're rather simply following a vapor trail. Well, that's a theory. It was tested and found to be false. So you've got a standard scientific situation. 
Okay, so you asked me about the famous description theory of reference. Question we are confronted with in the theory of references, in virtue of what does a term refer to whatever it refers to? And a very popular idea is whatever is uniquely picked out by the descriptions that competent users of the term associate with the term. Let me give you a, a simple example. There's a boring one which philosophers love. That is the example of bachelor. A description theory of bachelor is likely to say something like this, that bachelor refers to whatever is picked out jointly by the words adult, unmarried, and male. So that's the description theory of reference for bachelor. Another plausible example is the uh, word vixen. Vixen, it's plausible to think that it refers to whatever is jointly picked out by the words female and fox. Those are paradigm examples of description theories of reference, and I think quite plausible ones. Um, it's worth noting something about them immediately. They both require knowledge of the referent, what is referred to. So in order to be competent with the term vixen, you have to associate it with female and fox, and so you know, in virtue of that association, that vixens are female foxes. So that's a piece of knowledge, as it were, you have to have in order to be competent with the term. That's a very important feature of all description theories. I want to notice something else about a description theory, which I think I'm the only one to have pointed out, but it seems to me to be quite important. They're essentially incomplete. Take the Vixen example. I explained it like this. I said the description theory, according to the description theory of uh, Vixen, Vixen refers to whatever is jointly picked out by female and fox. What's this picking out business? It's really just another name for reference. So what I'm really saying here is that Vixen refers to whatever is jointly referred to by female and fox. So let's suppose that's true, as I think it quite likely is. We obviously haven't finished the task of explaining the reference of Vixen, because we've now got, surely, to finish the task of explaining the reference of female and fox. How are we going to do that? Well, of course, we could contemplate another description theory. But all you're really doing, as people say about American Congress, is all you're doing here is kicking the can down the road. Every time you produce another description theory to explain a term, you're just postponing the ultimate explanation, because the ultimate explanation is going to have to be one which relates a piece of language directly to the world, not via its association with some other descriptions. Otherwise, you won't get any of language to relate to the world. You'll just have this continual regress. So those are two things that, to really notice. You've got to know a lot, according to the description theory, to put it in philosophical jargon. It's epistemically demanding, and they're incomplete. So the theory of reference asks, what is it for a word to stand for something? And the answer that the description theory of reference provides is a word stands for whatever the descriptions we associate with that word uniquely identify. We've been talking about two cases here, bachelor as, as it were, shorthand for unmarried adult male, and vixen as shorthand for female and fox. But people who have this description theory of reference also tend to think of proper names. So not just general terms like Fox and Bachelor, but names like Matt Teichman or Mark Hopwood as also 
having descriptions associated with them. So how does that work exactly? Yes, um, that's very true. It's really quite interesting that an awful lot of attention in the theory of reference has actually been on proper names. And you might wonder why. And I think the answer is proper names, they seem simpler. <laughs> and I think they really are simpler. And you might as well, when you're faced with such a horribly difficult task as doing a theory of reference, you might as well start on what seems to be the simple case. And um, so a vast amount of attention on this. And the popular view for proper names was indeed a description theory of one sort or another. According to a description theory of names, and there are lots of varieties of this theories, and I'm not going to, I'm just going to give the classical theory which comes from Frager and Russell. The idea is that the name refers in virtue of being associated in the minds of competent speakers with certain descriptions which uniquely identify a bearer. So to take the famous example of the uh, great philosopher Frager, the name Aristotle, which we all use of course to refer to that great ancient philosopher, the name Aristotle refers because associated, it's associated with the description pupil of Plato and teacher of Alexander the Great. That long description uniquely picks out the famous ancient Greek philosopher. So that's the description theory of proper names. So good, okay, so that's a example of how the description theory would deal with Aristotle. It refers to whatever's uniquely picked out by pupil of Plato and teacher of Alexander the Great. So great, it seems like we have a working theory of the reference of, of proper names. Is there anything wrong with that? Well, it does seem like a good theory. It seems to do the job. I mean, there are other jobs that have to be done here, which it does, and I haven't gone into those, but it does seem to be a nice theory of reference. And it ruled with a lot of the modifications and so on. It ruled for something like 60 years, almost unchallenged. And then the challenge came in the late 60s from Saul Kripke. In fact, the first time he made this challenge was in an undergraduate class at Harvard in 1967, which I, I was a graduate student at Harvard at that point, and I sat in on this undergraduate class, and that was when this challenge was first made. Now, Kripke had quite a complicated refutation of this description theory of names, but I think the most important part of it is really very easy to grasp, and it's zoned in on something I've already drawn attention to, which is that description theories are epistemically demanding. They require you to have knowledge. Think of what Frege's example of Aristotle. In order for someone to be competent with the name Aristotle, according to Frege, he would have had to know that Aristotle was the pupil of Plato and teacher of Alexander the Great. I do have to say that I felt before I read Frege that I was competent with the name Aristotle, and I didn't know. Uh, I think um, certainly the second thing, that is that he taught Alexander the Great. So to refer on the description theory with a name, you have to have identifying knowledge of the bearer. And Saul, with a few simple examples, brought out how wildly implausible this is. I call the arguments that he put forward the ignorance and error arguments. There were a range of examples, but let me just take a couple. Einstein. Now, this is a name on everyone's lips, just about. And we all surely are competent to refer to the great physicist with the name Einstein. But who can give an identifying description 
of Einstein. How many of the millions of people who use this? Well, it's actually extremely difficult to give an identifying description. You might say something like the discoverer of the special theory of relativity. But the trouble there is that the special theory of relativity is another name. And so really, if the description theory is going to be right here, you have to have a, an identifying description for that. And I think we can safely say that our identifying description of the uh, special theory of relativity is probably beyond the capacities of almost everyone who, who uses the name Einstein. So people are, in other words, just too ignorant to satisfy the demands of the description theory with a name like Einstein. And Einstein, of course, is standing in here for thousands of other names. There's another problem, error. A lot of people, as Saul pointed out, a lot of people will associate with the name Einstein something that is false. For example, a lot of people think that he invented the atomic bomb. The actual inventor of the atomic bomb, I am, well, you could argue about who it is, but it certainly isn't Einstein. So, all of those people will, of course, automatically fail to refer to the famous physicist and even possibly refer to someone else with the name Einstein. Something has gone very, very badly wrong. Another example used with Columbus, you get the same sort of thing with Columbus. I mean, a lot of people think that Columbus was the first person to discover that the Earth was round. Well, he wasn't. Or to think that the Earth was round, he wasn't. So you've got error again, yet surely we're all able to use the term Columbus. We're all able to say, for example, quite truly, there's a city in Ohio named after Columbus. Something has gone severely wrong here. We need another theory, and that's what Saul provided. So there are a number of problems with the description theory of reference, and the one we've been focusing on is that it's just very demanding. It's very demanding on the speaker. The idea that Aristotle is shorthand for student of Plato and teacher of Alexander the Great seems to require that in order to be able to successfully use the word Aristotle to refer to the right person. You have to know those two things, but a lot of people don't know those two things, and arguably they can still be said to know how to use the term Aristotle to refer to that person. So what's the alternative? Yes, right. Let me just finish on this, um, pro the problems with the description theory. Brought out so vividly with these examples, uh, like Einstein and Columbus, I like to put it like this. Saul really showed that if the description theory were correct, most names out of almost everyone's lips would fail to refer. And that, of course, is a catastrophe for the theory of reference. So what's the alternative? Well, Saul proposed what he called a picture, which he didn't develop in a great deal of detail, but it's a very vivid picture. The central idea in the picture is the idea of reference borrowing. Saul said, look, if we think of the name Aristotle, way back when Aristotle was around, he was named, dubbed, that's how he got his name, and ever after that, people have been using his name in communication situations, and that's how the name is passed on, and, and it's in virtue of that passing on of the name from person to person through all two and a bit millennia that we are now able to refer to Aristotle using his name. That is to say, there is, as he put it, a causal chain going back from us through all these communication situations, right back to the original users of the name Aristotle when Aristotle was still around. And that causal chain is made up of thousands of cases of people borrowing reference from another. Very vivid idea. Person X, has the name Aristotle, 
and uses it in a communication situation in the presence of person Y and the person Y is then in the position to borrow the reference from person X. There's the idea here that the determination of the reference of my words is not something I, as it were, do all on my own. I can do it because I'm part of a linguistic community which has grounded the term in the object. This idea of reference borrowing, which Saul came up with for proper names, seems to me to be one of the great breakthroughs in thinking about language. And it's interesting to contemplate, as I indeed do day by day, just how much of reference is to be explained with the help of reference borrowing. Notice some features of this. The problem for the description theory of names, or the main problem it seems to me is, that it's epistemically demanding. Notice that the theory of reference borrowing explains how it is that you can be ignorant about the referent and yet still refer. To be able to refer, you just have to be part of that communication chain. Even if you've got things pretty damned wrong, even if you think that uh, Aristotle lived in the Middle Ages or you think that Aristotle was actually a contemporary of Socrates or whatever. It doesn't really matter, provided you're part of the chain. So it enables you to be ignorant about the referent, it enables you to be wrong about the referent, and, it's, and yet still able to refer. It's a remarkable breakthrough. So that's the key idea in the causal theory. There's something I passed over very quickly, and it's worth zoning in on that. The theory of reference borrowing tells us how we can refer with the name Aristotle in virtue of our predecessors, our ancestors referring with the name Aristotle, but how did they manage? Or putting this another way, how was reference fixed in the first place? And uh, I said something rather hand-waving, I said in the beginning, you know, he was dubbed. Well, what are we to say about this initial fixing of the reference? Saul himself didn't say much about that and was a little bit uncertain about it and I think maybe even be a bit so to this day. I took a stand on it in my early work and I said that at least in with all the standard names, the reference fixing was something that was a causal matter too. What made it the case in the first place that Aristotle got the name Aristotle, what made it the case that the referent of it was fixed in that particular ancient Greek philosopher was the situation at the beginning of causal perceptual link, a causal perceptual link between the people who introduced the name and Aristotle himself. It was in this causal perceptual confrontation that the name was bestowed and it's in virtue of that causal perceptual link that its reference was fixed. So in my version of Kripke's picture, the story, at least with standard names, is causal all the way through. There's a causal link at the very beginning, a causal perceptual link. Then we have all the reference borrowings, which are all causal too. But one of the morals that we should get out of Saul's breakthrough is, wherever there is reference borrowing, and there's certainly reference borrowing with names, as I think he showed, but there's probably reference borrowing with lots of terms. If you want to give a theory of reference for them, you have two jobs. One is you have to give a theory of reference borrowing, and the other is you have to give a theory of reference fixing. And you should note that even though if I'm right with standard names, the reference is fixed causally, it might be the case, even if the reference is later borrowed, the reference is fixed descriptively. Okay, so the causal theory of reference, which originates from the work of Saul Kripke and which you have defended for some years now, states that what it is for the name 
Matt Teichman to refer to me is for it to be the name that was given to me in this sort of like christening ceremony upon my birth, you know, where my parents pointed at me and said, this is Matt Teichman or something. To be the person to whom, in fact, that happened is to be the person to whom the name refers. But the whole problem that we raised with the description theory of reference is that it placed too heavy a demand on the speaker. So let's say that according to a description theory of names, the name Matt Teichman is just shorthand for uh, the host and producer of elucidations. That seems like a bad theory because somebody might know who I am without knowing that I'm either the host or the producer of elucidations. Couldn't there be a similar worry about this causal theory of reference? Because doesn't it sound like in order to use the word Matt Teichman on this view, the person has to know that I'm the person who was baptized Matt Teichman in 1980, years and years ago at St. Mary's Hospital and you know, who is the end point of a chain of reference borrowings <laughs> going from back then to now? I mean, who on earth using the name Matt Teichman knows that? Right. It's a, a very important feature of the causal theory, at least as, as I think of it, that in fact it has no such demand on speakers. A feature of the tradition in the philosophy of language and in the theory of reference is that it is Cartesian. It supposes that people who are competent with words, as we would ordinarily say, know the meaning of the words, that these people actually know that the word refers in this sort of way, know that the word has this sort of meaning. The competence, which is an inner state, yields this information about the language. You might say, one way of putting this is the competence itself brings with it a theory of language, brings with it a theory of reference. The sort of causal theory I want to urge has no such consequence at all. Knowing the meaning and reference of an expression, which is just another way of saying being competent with an expression, is a matter on the sort of theory I push of simple know-how. It's not a matter of knowing that, anything. It's just a matter of having a certain skill. So using uh, the, your name, Matt, to refer, all the people who can use your name, Matt, to refer, have to, in order to do that, have to stand in a certain causal relationship to you via reference borrowing and the original dubbing. They have to stand in that, but they don't have to know anything about it at all. You don't have to know any theory of reference. So it's not only that you don't have to, as the description theory required, to know facts about Matt, to use the name Matt. You don't have to do that on the causal theory, but nor do you even have to have knowledge, any knowledge of how the reference is determined. Let me give you a really crude analogy. In order to ride a bike, you have to have a certain know-how, a certain skill, but you don't have to know that this skill consists in this, that, and the other. In fact, we can all ride bikes, I suppose, and yet our knowledge of what on earth, what the properties of riding a bike is very, very few and far between. I mean, we just don't know. In fact, if you ask people how they ride a bike, they'll give you answers that are quite totally false. So it's a matter of knowledge how, not it's a skill. It's not a piece of knowledge that. You don't have to know anything about the theory. That's a very important feature of the view. So that last point you made is a really interesting one. I mean, you said that when we're coming up with a theory of reference, what we really should be paying attention to is not knowledge that 
not knowledge of certain facts, but I kind of know how. That's what's at issue in the theory of reference. And I guess this kind of ties our conversation back to to where we started, talking about language as, as a kind of activity, a, a thing that animals do. I mean, does your view suggest that we should be thinking about language more in these terms as a kind of activity? I certainly think very strongly that we should never lose sight of the fact that languages are part of the natural world and playing a causal role in that natural world, and it's because of the causal role that they're playing in the natural world that they're theoretically interesting. Uh, This is very vivid if we think of the bees and the prairie dogs. There's a lot going on with bees and prairie dogs which we couldn't explain properly if we didn't suppose, unless we suppose they had a language, and once we suppose they have a language, we need to know about it. We need to be able to explain it. And notice, just going back to your, your opening remark there, Mark, notice that with the bees and the prairie dogs, we aren't tempted, at least we shouldn't be tempted, to suppose that they know the theory of their language. The bee knows that the waggle dance means blah de blah We should really be quite happy to think, look, it's not a matter of the bee knowing that, anything. The bee has just got a certain competence, presumably innate, which enables it to produce these pieces of language. It's got that skill of producing. It can go out to a food source, come back, and it has the skill to produce this waggle dance with the message. The sender bees have the skill of responding to this appropriately, understanding it and responding. It's a skill. It's not a piece of knowing that. Michael Devitt, thanks very much for joining us. It was a pleasure. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.